This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. actually started a Daily Thunder series, it was a few weeks ago, and it was called Tough Questions. And if any of you have followed Daily Thunder, you know that I started the series with Nathan. Nathan was sort of interviewing me on these tough questions, and they were all culturally sensitized questions. And we, we filmed three of them, and then after filming three, we were like, you know what, I don't know that this is the best medium of communicating this. And so we actually stopped and filmed a new one, which was basically why the, the question was, so why are you not releasing your series called Tough Questions? And that was the question we answered. And it's because we both felt strongly that it needed a better framework as opposed to a quick discussion in 15 minutes, because some of these issues, are they're volatile and they can split the body unintentionally if you don't say things just right. We have a highly sensitized culture that measures every word you speak. Well, just imagine if you're the communicator and every word you speak is being monitored and measured to see if it is you know, tasteful and right and appropriate and correct with the definition of correct, of course, being defined by the one receiving the words. And so it's difficult to be correct in everyone's eyes. In fact, I think one of the things that you just sort of assume right from the beginning is if I just shared this you know, in mass a good percentage of the world would hate it because they hate Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what I say, that's a good probability. At the same time, my desire as a communicator is to reach people with truth and not just offend people. My desire is never to offend. It's to draw people unto Jesus, to help them see what I see. Because I have been changed by this truth. I have fallen in love with Jesus. I know what people think that don't love Jesus. I know their accusations. It's not that I'm ignorant of them. However, those have melted away from me. I don't have them. I don't have a cynicism towards the reality of Jesus Christ. I have been transformed. I have been set free. And I want others to taste and see or to know that he is good. And so in a a thing like this, you have these tough questions, right? Nathan and I both felt that maybe if we were to put them even into a sermon format, it could actually be more effective to sort of create the framework. And you'll understand how complex this one is just by the fact of how I have to set this up to try and communicate this, all right? So you guys ready for what is actually a tough question? One of the first ones we were doing in the series that now is being translated into a sermon, Little did you guys know, you were like, that was supposed to stay in Daily Thunder. Now we're subjected to it, Eric. When Jenny becomes Jake. So I don't know if that makes sense to you or if you understand what I mean by that, but we live in a generation where there's a lot of confusion over the issues of gender, which when you're in the body of Christ and you may not be confused over gender, or you may at least have a clear bead on what the Word of God says, and you're at rest there, and you never were rustled there, you can lack an understanding of why anyone's struggling with this. And to you, it can oftentimes be cut and dry. And yet, if I could give an illustration, in the midst of our culture, we have a segregation that has taken place where many in our culture do not think biblically anymore. Whereas a Judeo-Christian worldview used to rule in this land, it no longer does. And so in that sense, there has been a movement towards secularism and paganism, that which is away from the understanding of God. And the language then alters because it is no longer Judeo-Christian in its nature. It begins to search for other ways of expressing a reality or a worldview that is absent God. And so in the midst of our country, which we've, most of us have deemed for many years a Christian country, but it isn't a Christian country anymore, and it is not even just a post-Christian country, I would say it's more likely or close, more closely defined as an anti-Christian 
country. Whereas that which is true or that which is godly or that which is biblical is actually offensive. That's an odd thing for many of us that have been around for, multi, you know, for at least a few decades because things have altered quite dramatically. When you are engaging with a culture that doesn't know God, you engage with it different than you engage with a culture that does know God. And what we as the church are struggling with is knowing how to adapt to a culture that doesn't know God. Because we still have our moorings that say it should, and I'm not going to argue that. It should, but Adam and Eve shouldn't have eaten from that fruit in the first place. In other words, there is a wandering and a veering that can take place, and we've definitely seen it in our country. And the fact that it is sad and it's grievous is true. But what we do about it is part of the challenge and it's where the tough question comes in. If I'm a missionary and I'm going to a godless culture, I start with the premise that it's godless. And I start by entering that culture and not slapping someone on the face to say you're just wrong, but I enter into the culture with an intent to win the culture. So I study it, I learn its language, I learn its customs, I learn its laws, not so that I keep all of them. In other words, I don't violate my Christianity, but to the degree that I can become something similar to that so that I can effectively reach it, I will do that. So it might mean a change of dress. It might mean I actually learn to speak their language. Whoa, you know, if that's a pagan people group, that's a pagan language. And yet, to the degree that I can speak in their language to reach them, I would. But that's how a missionary works. This is our hometown. This is our country. We're not missionaries, are we? And so there's going to be things wrapped inside of this. I guarantee you, almost every one of you will probably be disgusted with me at some point along the way in trying to communicate this. And that's what's hard about this question. When I call this a tough question, it's a tough question. For some of you, it's very simple. If a girl named Jenny desires to be called Jake, some of you are like, well, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to call her Jake. And then some of you are like, if she wants to be called Jake, of course I would. That's just common sense and cultural correctness. That's just how it works. If you want to maintain a relationship with Jenny, you better call her Jake. And to you, it might be cut and dry. And I want us to know and reason together through this that this isn't actually just easy. There's a reason why the enemy moves cultures in the way he does, and he tangles things to the point where we then struggle. It's like, well, God, what am I supposed to do here? Because it's sort of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't type of a thing. It sounds a little like the vaccine, or it sounds a little like wearing masks. No matter what, as the conservative church, we encounter these things, and it's like if you don't, you're in trouble, and if you do, you're in trouble. There's a whole sector of society that's like, oh, they're a mask wearer. There's a whole sector of society going, oh, they're not a mask wearer. And oh, they got the vaccine. Oh, they didn't get the vaccine. I mean, it separates and it segregates the culture on these issues that are not biblical issues. It doesn't say in the Bible, thou shalt take the vaccine or thou shalt not take the vaccine. It doesn't say wear a mask or don't wear a mask. And it doesn't say call Jenny Jake. And it doesn't say don't call Jenny Jake. We have to reason. We have to utilize the scripture and apply it unto the matter at hand. You guys ready for this? Some of you are very glad you showed up at church today. Some of you are not. <laughs> Making godly decisions in the midst of a godless world. So here's our challenge. What to do when Jenny requests to be called Jake? Now, I tried to pick a name that was distinctly female, like Jenny, and contrast it with a name which is distinctly male, like Jake. You know, because some names like Billy. Well, you could have a boy named Billy and a girl named Billy. And so it wouldn't make my point the same. But this is a woman who is desirous to be called a man's name. Probably for reasons that we all understand, and that is that she wants to identify as a man. Well, that poses some challenges for us. The question, should I actually call Jenny Jake? It's a good question. And some of you already have your decision made up, and I'm not trying to change it. I'm just saying this is a challenging one. So if people differ from you on it, I actually understand why. So I'm going to have a few presumptions in this, which is dangerous, because in this group today, I may not be accurate in my presumptions. 
but I have to start somewhere in this and I have to sort of define my audience. So if you don't fit this, that's okay. Just you can at least listen knowing that that's what I'm presuming, okay? And that is that those listening to this already understand that gender is not based on human preference, choice, or desire, but on a God decision. So many of us in here have dealt with the issues of gender because I've brought up the, the topic many times. It's a big issue in our, our generation. And the Bible is clear on this. It doesn't waver. It doesn't waffle. It doesn't you know, get all mushy on it. It just says it straightly. Genesis 1.27 says, male and female, he created them. That's just what the Bible says. And so that's the presupposition that I'm bringing in or the presumption that I'm coming from in this is that we're all together in the fact that the issue I'm talking about today isn't, is it right uh, for Jenny to be, calling, uh, to be called Jake or to consider herself a man or to identify as a man if she's a woman? That's actually not what I'm talking about today, just to, to clarify. In Mark 10, 8, it says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There's this idea of a joining that takes place that is a God joining. Now, this is in the context of marriage. And when marriage is joined together by God, then it is not meant to be separated. And there are certain other joinings that take place. For instance, a joining with your parenting, with, with your children and, and a parent. Okay, So if you're a parent and you have children, you're joined with them. If you're a child and you have a parent, you're joined with them. And it's, there's a God submission that takes place that then the word of God actually speaks to your position, either as a parent or as a child, and you can't just scrap it because you don't like it. It's real. It's there. You're joined with it. And I'm going to say the same thing is true with gender. It is a joining. That joining or that yoking is actually given to benefit you. A, a yoke is actually given to help you carry a load. And so you've been yoked in a certain way with parents, which some of you are like, boy, that isn't helping me carry a load. Or you've been yoked in marriage, and some of you are like, yeah, that's really not helping me carry a load. Or you've been yoked in gender, and you're like, oh, boy, that sure is a problem. You've been yoked in race. You're like, oh, wow, this has sure caused every problem I could imagine. However, if you embrace it, God can use it. When you fight against it, it actually breaks down your life, and that's the enemy's agenda. So this is, again, a presumption that I'm bringing to the table here. If you would like to go deeper in this, I have a message called Yoked Together in my sermon podcast, September 4th, 2022 is when that was delivered. All right, I'm not just trying to market my sermon podcast. Most of you in here know I've never done that before, just put a previous sermon, but I am not covering that today. I have a whole message on that if you would like to go to that. So here's my second presumption. I'm presuming that those listening to this message desire to help Jenny and not hurt her in any way. They love Jenny and have a deep affection for her and a deep desire to see her healthy, whole, strong, and encouraged. There's, there's a thought out there that if anyone addresses this issue with a biblical fashion or biblical mindset, that you're sort of anti-Jenny. Like, Jenny blew it, and you're just mad at Jenny, and you want to correct Jenny, you know, so that you feel good. When in actuality, I would say, my presumption is we're all on the same page, we want to help Jenny. That's the reason this is a challenge. If we don't care about Jenny, well, then it's, this isn't even really a question. Just tell Jenny whatever you want. But we want to win Jenny. We want Jenny to be set free. We don't want Jenny to be struggling with the struggles she has. We want her to be set free from them. Okay, so that's a presumption. I may be wrong, and maybe you've gone rogue, and you don't like Jenny, right? However, I'm starting with the presumption that we're on the same page there. That's not what this message is about. So I just wanted to at least cover that. So what's the answer to the question after all that? I'm going to give the answer, and yet it's not going to make sense to you at first. I'm going to refer to this scripture three times. This is the first time. Layer one, I don't give any explanation, but it's there. The answer is there. This is at the wedding at Cana, and this is what Mary says to the servants. Remember, that are going to fill the vats with, uh, with water. And so he, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. I know I, that doesn't explain anything, but it's a really good scripture. It's a great statement. It's a great summation of the Christian life. And yet, most of us are not going to take the statement from Mary, the mother of Jesus, saying, talking to the servants and say, well, there's the Christian life right there. We don't think about it that way. However, it is a great statement. And the answer is in that, but we'll get to that. So the chief reason this question is not an easy one to answer the chief reason is there are variations of what we call love, or what I could call shades of love, or different expressions of love on a scale. 
So let's imagine that we have this sliding scale and it can go all the way from one side to the other and all of it is love, but depending on how, just like a piano keyboard, you could say, which key is the most spiritual? Well, whichever one follows the music. You see, someone needs to define the music that we are supposed to play in our life and it's actually not us. We're supposed to be the ones that read the music and then play upon those keys that God has given us. Love. God knows in every situation what is needed. And that's why this particular situation or question is challenging. I'm calling it, calling it the obedience chart. So over on the left, you have one side of love, which is sort of a dark purplish color. And then you go all the way to the yellow on the other side. The, the really soft-hearted, mercy, compassionate people in the room love the right side. The people that are more uh, exhortation-driven and want to see purity in the church have a tendency to really like the left side of the chart, but not one side is more spiritual than the other. You see, this is love if it is directed by the Spirit of God. And though some of us might lean towards one side of the chart than the other personality-wise, that isn't how God works. God doesn't work, you know, personality-wise where he's just like, oh yeah, God's classic loving separation and loving rebuke. That's God. No, God is love, which means he delivers all of this all the time, but to each of us in our situation, he measures out and gives us precisely what we need. He gives us the version of love or the kind of love that we need to be rescued. So you'll see on the far left, loving separation. You know that there is something in scripture where you are supposed to separate from someone because of their sin, and that's actually loving. I know, it's really hard to understand, but it is. And then we have loving rebuke. Then we have strong correction. Then we have hearty exhortation. Then we have gentle instruction. Then we have tender encouragement. Then we have simple kindness. And then we have silent service. The sort that you don't even say anything. You just sacrifice on someone's behalf and serve them even if you're not known for it. And you're loving that person, but maybe not making some statement as you're doing it. You're just simply showing the love of Jesus. One side to the other. They're all communicating love, but the question, you're like saying, well, where am I supposed to land on this? Well, um, that's my point in this. Is It's not just a cut and dry thing. Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 this is just a sampling of how that scale can go all over the place. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. It's like, okay, all right, so a fool starts talking to me, I'm not going to answer him. And then the next line says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to answer a fool according to his folly. And it shows you that there's this sliding scale. It's like in this situation, do not answer him. And then this other one, answer him, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Looking in Scripture for the canned response. What does the Bible say on the matter? Here's how we usually approach an issue like this. Eric, tell me what I'm supposed to do. Uh, that's a lot of pressure on me to tell you what you're supposed to do in this situation. So I am. I'm answering that, but not in the way that you want or the way we as humans want. We just want a rule. We want to know what we do every time. And that isn't actually how Christianity works, where you do the same thing in every situation. And that's part of the beauty of following God, but that's also part of the frustration. It's like, God, I just want to please you. I want to be right in your eyes. I want, to, I want to handle this issue correctly. And so that's actually what I'm teaching you, is how to handle this correctly. But if you're going to handle it correctly, you can't search for the canned response. A canned response is just one that you sort of stick in a little can. It's always the same. You shake it around, it always sounds the same. And God's responses are not canned. If he's healing a blind person, Sometimes he just says, be healed. Sometimes he spits. Sometimes he makes a little mud patty and smothers it all over the eyes. Sometimes he says, go and wash in the pool. Okay, God, uh, well, let's just come up with one response here. You're starting to you know, go all over the map here. No, he's staying in one place. He heals blind eyes. The fact that he does it differently every time is his business. And that's what's lovely about our lovely creator is he doesn't just make us all the same. He has variety and even in how he relates to us, there is creativity. So hint, it's not a canned response that we're going to find in the Bible. It's what's called a God response. There's a difference between a canned response and a God response. 
So here's our question. I don't know if you've seen this question before, but should I actually call Jenny Jake? And if you were to think about what Eric said, you don't really have some clarity on that. It's like Eric said a lot, but I don't know that I've gotten an answer to that question. So the reason is, is I'm going to give a whole bunch of variables on this. These are things that play into the situation. It can even seem rather overwhelming as I start to unpack this. Like, wow, this is like a deep well. You see, the enemy is convoluting our world. When, when truth exits a world or a culture, then the enemy's at play. It's like his playground. And he starts to twist and warp and pervert things to the point where it becomes very challenging for us to know how to go in with surgical instruments and somehow get out the deception and set them free from it. Six biblical variables. So we'll call the first one supplying a witness for Christ. I want to show Jesus. So when someone says that they want to be called Jake, well, then some of you are going to say, well, and I can't do it because I want to witness for Christ. I need to stand for truth. And some of you say, I'm going to call them Jake because I want to show them love. And you could have two completely different opposite conclusions just on that one, supplying a witness for Christ. Number two, the missionary approach. I'll get into that. Number three, what is your jurisdiction? Number four, issues of conscience. Number five, approach to culture. And number six, the matter of love. So we're going to go through each one. Each one has a different color to it. And so this is variable number one, supplying a witness of Christ. All right, so I'm a messenger of Jesus. What am I supposed to do when someone is living in a form of deception? How do I encounter them if what they're asking me to do would maybe further that deception if I agree with it? And so do I give law? Do I give grace? Do I give a rebuke? Do I give an encouragement? Ah, where do I land in this? So let's look at the witness of truth. This is going to be sort of that, uh, the lover of purity, the lover of righteousness, the lover of holiness. See, each one of us has different gradients of emphasis, just even in our basic personality package. Some people, we typically would call them bleeding hearts. That's sort of the put-down version, even though it's actually not a bad term uh, for it. They're marked by compassion and mercy. And if they could give anything in any situation, their first instinct is to give mercy and compassion. Other people, they want to give truth. And they want to encourage and exhort someone out of their muddened state. And neither one is wrong, ironically. They both are wired a certain way, but both of them have to be willing to allow God to play them as an instrument differently than their base personality would suggest. So I may want to give truth, and God may say, shut up, Eric. Bend your knee and wash their feet. But God, I have something to say. There's truth that needs to come forth. Yeah, have it come forth through an action of love. And someone else who's moved by mercy might be inclined to just overlook something and God says, I want you to speak to them right now about the truth of their soul and what they need, that they need to repent. <gasps> a mercy person's like, no, God, don't do that to me. The key is not your personality. Your personality is a strength that God has given you to help you agree with God, but it also can be a hindrance if you don't allow the Spirit of God to be the one playing it as an instrument. So the witness of truth this is the classic conservative uh, conclusion. Jenny is a female and Jake is a man's name. I would be indirectly endorsing and or encouraging a lie deception by utilizing the name Jake instead of Jenny. So I cannot do that. Jude 1.3, there's a lot of support for standing for the truth in this generation. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Ephesians 4.15, this is speaking of this body of Christ that is ever maturing. And it says that this body of Christ speaks the truth in love. That is what they do. So they speak truth. They don't speak a whole bunch of wishy-washy nonsense just to encourage someone. They speak truth. Okay, in love. Romans 12.9, let love, which we're speaking, right, uh, be without hypocrisy. Abhor, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Acts 18, 28, Paul, how did he handle some of these issues? He vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that isn't a direct application to this issue, but you could sort of see how someone might take it that way. Paul vigorously defended the truth, and this is an issue of truth in our generation. 
2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. To hold fast the pattern of sound words. God has given us a revelation of his reality, of the way things work, and to hold fast to it in this situation, you need to speak something clear, don't you? That is a perfectly viable option to speak clearly or to not agree with something that is being said as a preservation of truth in a generation. So I'm not going to discount it. Okay, I'm just going to give the other side as well. So this is still variable number one, which is what we're call, calling a, supplying a witness of Christ. And this is what we're going to call the witness of love. So if you're going to show Jesus in a generation, you're going to witness to him? Well, yeah, you can speak truth, but then you have the other side that's going to say, I want to represent love. And this is a good argument. If someone requests to be referred to in a special way, for instance, call me Buzz. I don't know how many of you, if some guy came up to you and said, yeah, call me Buzz, that you're going to go, no. I mean, that would be weird. Or how about my friends call me Skip? Well, I'm not one of those friends, so I'm not going to. Or I go by Wizzy. Then it is respectful, honorable, and loving to deferentially allow them to pick their preferred name. Isn't it interesting? Up to this point in history, anyone who chooses a nickname or a name that they want to go by you just go along with it. And now suddenly we're at this impasse. We're like, but that name is off limits. And so I'm just giving you the opposite side, the other side of this that is a reasonable argument to be laid out there, which is why this is a challenging issue. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 20 and 22 through 23. So this is where you see the other side or the other aspect of the argument coming out. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. In other words, if I'm going to win Jenny, I don't want to stumble over just that. I want to do whatever it takes to win her. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Romans 2.4 says this, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So imagine this argument. If the goodness of God leads to repentance, well, could it be that the goodness of the church leads to repentance and ungodly people? So now, as I share some of these, when I sh there's, your personality is being played. There's certain ones of you that lean more towards a forthright, clear line of demarcation on this. There's others, others of you that lean more compassionate. And so when I give the more compassionate side to this, you're, you're like, now that's the way to think, Eric. That, amen on that one. Your other thoughts were a little skewed, but this one is good. And yet, these are good thoughts. They're biblical thoughts, both directions. Neither of them are wrong. What they need is another entity to play upon them. They're just keys on a keyboard. There's nothing wrong with the white keys, and there's nothing wrong with the black keys. Like one is more right and one is more wrong. Even though one of us might play the black keys more, one of us might play the white keys more. Makes no difference. What does God want to play? Luke 19, 55 through 8. This is what we could call the Zacchaeus principle. This is a show of what we could call the witness of love towards the sinner hanging out in the sycamore tree. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they, remember the they out there, there's always a they in every culture. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Okay, <laughs> what would be the equivalent in this one? Uh, they just called Jenny Jake. I mean, they didn't even blush when they did it. They just did it. I mean, how could they be a Christian if they call Jenny Jake? Okay, follow me? This is, this is a similar type of thing. He's, taking, he's going into Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is a sinner. He cannot endorse Zacchaeus by going in. He's a tax-collecting sinner nonetheless. But look at the response. It's the goodness of the Lord that leads Zacchaeus to repentance. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. You see a repentance. Now, some of us will justify, and the more compassionate side of this, it's like, oh, I just want to love them instead of being this you know, hard-lined conservative. Yeah, but your goal isn't to win their soul. Jesus is trying to bring someone to repentance, and he's using goodness as a means of doing it. 
And of course, on the other side, someone who's speaking truth, what are you speaking truth for? Well, hopefully it's to bring them to repentance, right? Same motive, but oftentimes different keys are being played. Variable number two, the missionary approach. How do I win the lost to Christ? Is there only one method that works? What is the key that unlocks the soul to Jesus? So I'm going to go through this very simply. I'm going to give you two different models for how it is done in our modern era. Both extremely effective and both very different from one another. First one is what we're going to call the Ray Comfort model. Now, for those of you that are familiar with Ray Comfort, which is probably most of us in here, Ray is very passionate about winning the lost by first convicting them of sin. So he uses the law as his tool. What's his scripture for that? Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So he'll give them the Ten Commandments. And a soul, when it receives the Ten Commandments, is broken against it, and it's exposed against it. And then what he does in follow-through is to show them the love of Jesus, that he forgives them for that. But they have to turn their life to Jesus. So he uses law to win them, to expose sin, to bring them unto the need of a Savior. That is one method, and it works. However, who does it work on? Those that don't realize they're sinners. What if someone knows that they're a sinner? Do they need more law? If someone knows that they're a sinner, uh, just a word to the wise, they don't need more law. What they need is love. And that's the other one. I'm going to call this the David Wilkerson uh, method. David Wilkerson was always going to the lowest of the low, whether it was the gang members, whether it was the drug uh, addicts. Uh, he, he went to, uh, after his book, Crossing the Switchblade, he would go to different pockets of urban society where there was just a, an, it was overrun with, with sin. So the homosexual community in San Francisco, he held an entire uh, series of services there and saw thousands and thousands of them come to Christ. Pretty amazing story, but what his message was wasn't law. Because these guys already know they're in bondage. They already know that they have sin in their life. And they've been trying to justify it. That's what they're going through. But he comes in and tells them that even though they're sinners, God loves them. Totally different tactic. So as you see, John 3.16, I know quite a creative scripture for me to whip up for this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel. And there's two ways to deliver that gospel. Is one more correct than the other? How would you know which one to give? If you're supposed to give law, you don't want to give love. If you're supposed to give uh, love, you're, you don't want to dish out law. Well, I, I will get to that because there, there is an answer to that question. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that technically you can play these keys differently depending on the circumstance. Variable number three, what is your jurisdiction? Is it your place to say something? What is your responsibility in this matter? This is, a, again, another tender one that just needs to be included in the list. So I'm going to go through, I'll just show you four different uh, jurisdictions that you could have. A jurisdiction is a space of authority or voice. Addiction means speech, right? So this is like a ruling territory over which you have say. I have ruling say over my body. So I have jurisdiction over my body. It's called self-government. I'm responsible for what happens here. I have jurisdiction over a marriage. I have jurisdiction over a family of children. I have jurisdiction over a church. I have jurisdiction over a ministry, right? But not everyone does. These are jurisdictions I have. You might have jurisdiction over a business. And so we have different jurisdictions. And what that jurisdiction means is it gives us a responsibility to say things. And it gives us a responsibility not to turn a blind eye in certain situations. And so that, again, plays into how we read the sheet music. First one is authority. That's a jurisdiction where we're responsible for bringing correction. I have a jurisdiction of authority over my children, and you may not. So you may see my children behaving in a way that's like a little sketchy. And it does not mean you have no role or responsibility, but it may not be your role to correct. It may be your role to encourage or to exhort or to talk to me. And that is different. That's a different way of handling an issue. It's how you wield your voice. The second one is accountability, where you're responsible for exhorting. So someone has invited you into a position of discipleship or of accountability. If you're in a position of discipleship, that means you have authority, like pastoring. 
if you're in a position of authority or of accountability, you might be a buddy. It's like, hey, yeah, if you ever see me like, you know, doing something, why don't you tell me? Okay, well, then you need to tell them. And so if, if they start going wayward, well, then technically you have been put in a position where you need to speak, you need to say something. A friend, a friend may not be an accountability partner. It might just be a friend. They may not have been invited in to say something, but they're still a friend, and that does not a, that's not a low uh, position. It's responsible to remain faithful and true, which means it could need to speak, but that is a challenging thing. You do not have a voice of authority in someone's life to correct them. You can only encourage and be present. Social brush. If you're just like running into someone in a coffee shop, you don't even know who they are, which is most of the circumstances we would be in for this, we're responsible still for showcasing love and truth in every behavior. But we're not necessarily responsible to correct that isn't our position in their life. It does not mean the Spirit of God can't lead us to say something, but these are different jurisdictional uh, frameworks that we approach things from. Variable number four, issues of conscience. What is my conscience saying? For some of you, this is an issue of conscience. You cannot call Jenny Jake. And if we were to dig down, you know, it's a very real thing for you. And I'm going to encourage you to stick with your conscience. I'm not going to ask you to violate your conscience. So option A, I can't in good conscience encourage Jenny and her delusion by calling her Jake. Or how about option B? I can't in good conscience not call Jenny Jake if Jenny requests it of me. Both of them would be conscience things. When I was dealing with the vaccine issue, conscience was a big deal because there were certain people that in good conscience could not get the vaccine. And get this, there were people that in good conscience had to get the vaccine. Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when conscience gets woven into it, it is an important matter and you shouldn't violate it. But it makes it hard for the rest of the body who sees someone doing something and going, hey, well, that's not my conscience. And we try and stick our conscience on them. And that's part of where we need to recognize what the Bible says about this and how each one of us is being played as an instrument by the Spirit of God. Now, variable number five, approach to culture. What is my job? I think you guys will find this very fascinating because all of us sort of have a different lens of how we approach culture. There are certain denominations throughout history that actually have no intention of engaging with culture. That's God's business. So they separate from culture. And then you have other denominations that feel their entire purpose of being is to change the culture in which they live. Think about that. So again, you have a sliding scale and we could all say, you cluck our tongues at one that we disagree with, but I'm saying that this is a variable that plays into the mix. So how about this? Instant is what I'm calling it. It's my job to change the culture right now. And so when Jenny wants me to call her Jake, this is my moment to shine. We're changing the culture right now with this Jenny girl, okay? This is where we start. Biding time. This is a very real perspective on culture change. It's my job to understand the culture to better engage, with a, to engage it with a truth that would change it. So do I feel that by not calling Jenny Jake, I'm going to change the culture? Or do I want to not make that my hill to die on? And do I want to better understand how I can reach Jenny? And if so, you might call Jenny Jake so that you can maintain a relationship with Jenny so as to win her for Christ. I'll call that biding time. Shining. This is a very different uh, perspective than the other two. It's my job to live as a light in a dark world and woo this world by my life and testimony. It's God's job to change this culture. So my job isn't to make some cultural statement here. It's just to be consistently Jesus in everything I do. And I don't even need to say it with words. I just live it with my life. And, you know, to be honest, that we could do with a little more of that at times when you see the right-wing fanatics and how they speak I don't know that they're wooing anyone to Jesus Christ, these pundits, these conservative pundits and their hardline convictions on things. I'm not exactly sure if that's drawing in the masses to Jesus. So you can understand how these different thoughts can be cultivated. Okay, that's pretty uh, bad to stick up on a screen, isn't it? The burp. Isn't it funny that even in this culture, the word burp is just sort of off color? It's like, Eric, I can't believe it. In church, you put that word on the screen. And so this is interesting. I, I say the rightness and lovingness of it are entirely defined by the cultural setting. 
So our desire is to show Jesus and to shine his love. All right, in America, I'm gonna give you an encouragement. When you go over to someone's house, don't burp at the kitchen table, okay? That is considered disrespectful, that is unloving, that is gross, all right? And that would be good advice to you. But if we get on a plane and we travel over to Japan and we sit down at a table and they serve you some food, I'm gonna say something very different. You know how you show respect and love to the woman that made this meal and set it before you? Is you need to um, give a, a really good burp after dinner. And you're like, I cannot do that. That is unloving and disrespectful, not in this culture. Isn't that weird? And so culture is also a player in how we approach these things. And like I said in the beginning, it's a reasonable argument to recognize we have a culture. And in our culture, we don't call Jenny Jake. But in Jenny's culture, it's different. And that's why I'm saying it's a reasonable argument to actually think that through and to evaluate that. What is the best way to win Jenny is our question. Should we call her Jake or is that reinforcing the delusion? Or should we not call her Jake and as a result somehow save her from the delusion? Oh, Eric hasn't solved this problem for us at all. Variable number six, this is our final variable. The matter of love. What does love look like in this situation? So when you take 1 Corinthians 13, which is our you know, love chapter, and there are certain aspects where you could argue mercy. You would give mercy in this situation. And then there's certain aspects where you would look at it as tough love. So here's the mercy. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not behave rudely, is not provoked, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And then you have the opposite side. You could extract out. You could say, yeah, but we need to be tough because love does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. And this is not the truth. Love is a sliding scale, and it's all love. There is a master musician that is setting sheet music in front of us, and he says, this is how I want you to play the keys right now. He has a song for us to reveal his glory. So here's our chart of love. Where do you need to land when Jenny wishes to be called Jake? Do you lovingly separate from someone who wants to be called Jake? Or on the opposite end, do you serve silently, never say anything? You never use a pronoun. You just somehow creatively avoid all pronouns. And you creatively weave your sentence structure together where you never have to use a name. You call them something like dear or friend. And you strategically weave around it, right? Okay, I'm saying there's a wide spectrum of options here. So let's look at option, uh, some different options. Option A, we'll call it the blunt truth. Some of you specialize in this. Love would correct Jenny and let her know that her name is actually Jenny and not Jake. Excuse me, but um, <clears throat> your name is actually not Jenny. I'm sorry, it's not Jake. That would really confuse her. It's like, wait, yeah, so that's what I'm saying though. Your name is not Jake, it's Jenny. All right? It's because I love you. Option B, we call it the soft approach. Love would respect Jenny, and though it may hold great concern for Jenny's life direction, it would call her Jake as a means of demonstrating care and kindness. Option C, we'll call this the wily tactic best used by older women from the South. Love would encourage Jenny by calling her Jake, but with the caveat, though I really feel your beauty is more fitting to the name Jenny than Jake, my dear. Option D, we'll call it the servant. Love would silently serve. It wouldn't comment either way. It would avoid using names, pronouns of any kind, if at all possible, and seek to show Jenny how much she is loved in and through acts of kindness, words of encouragement, and sacrificial demonstrations of care. Now, it's hard because some of you want to land on one of those. Like, that's my zone. And I don't blame you. This is sort of the same way I am in this, is I want all fog to be moved out, and I just want to know exactly what I'm supposed to do functionally and behaviorally in this generation right now to best represent Jesus Christ. The question, should I actually call Jenny Jake? 
Now, isn't it funny if we were to summarize everything together and go, Eric, I don't think you've actually answered that question. I have, but I'm answering it in a way that may not be what you're looking for. I think I started the whole message by saying that, right? John 2, 5, whatever he says to you, do it. Remember how I said in the very beginning, I said that's actually the answer to your question. However, you can't see it immediately. You're saying, but what am I supposed to do in this situation? There's so many variables. Okay. Well, let's listen to what Mary, the mother of Jesus, said to the servants at the wedding of Cana. Whatever he, speaking of Jesus, the H is capitalized there, whatever he says to you, do that. That's what you do. Now, that could sound confusing because you're like, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm looking in the Word and I'm trying to see what he said. So I'm going to unpack that concept just one degree. The Logos versus the Rhema. In the Bible, in the New Testament, you're going to have this word that we translate as word. It's always hard to say word translated as word. But it's translated as word. Jesus is the word become flesh. That's Logos. And then there's also another word for word, and it's Rhema. The Logos is what we know as the Scriptures, It's the same for every single one of us. Every one of us opens up to a scripture and it's the same. The same truth common to all. It is not unique to you where you open up the scripture and suddenly your version says something different. Of course, that's what the devil loves to try and do. We're like, oh, that doesn't agree with my Bible. The Bible is the same. Yeah, there's some funny renditions of it that go masquerading out there, but long and short, the Bible is the Bible and it's common to all and has been preserved for many generations so that we could all respond to the same truth. Rhema is when God takes that truth, which never changes, never alters, and can never be violated, but he takes that and personally applies it to you. So you know how that word is supposed to be lived out in your life. Mary, when she's approached by the angel and told that God wants to use her womb to house the Son of God, she says, be it done unto me according to thy rhema. Not all of us have been asked for our womb to be the house of the Savior of the world. That was a specific application that, by the way, matches all of the Old Testament. A virgin will be with child. The child will be born in Bethlehem. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This was actually a match with Scripture, but it was specifically applied to Mary for that moment in history. And she agreed with it. She did what God asked of her. And it didn't contradict the Logos. It fulfills the Logos. For us, we all have the same general revelation. It doesn't talk a lot about Jenny and Jake. And yet, God wants us to heed the Logos, bend our knee before it and say, God, you're right. I see that I'm supposed to love. I see that I'm supposed to represent truth. I see that I'm supposed to be a servant. I see that I'm supposed to contest for the truth and contend for it in my generation. Show me what to do, Lord. So we're going to call it, the Logos is the general, the Rhema is the specific. That's the specific answer you're after. The Logos is the common, the Rhema is the personalized. God takes from his truth, doesn't violate it when he does this, and he brings it to you where you know what to do specifically in your life, but it doesn't contradict the general, never can. So the word of God in text versus the word of God in person. Jesus, though he is the word of God in text, in a personal form, when he lived his life, he didn't just have all the answers up front, even though we could say, of course he did, he's God. But the way he did his life was very specific. He lived it dependent. Even though he is the word of God, he lived it dependent upon his father. And when he spoke, he only spoke what the Father was speaking. And when he acted, he only did what the Father was doing. And when he healed, he only healed who the Father was healing. He did what the Father was doing. And that's the word of God in person. So Jesus, he always does whatever his Father is doing, and he always speaks whatever his Father is speaking. Now let's talk about us. This is actually the answer to the question right here. 
We are always doing whatever Jesus is doing, and we're always speaking whatever Jesus is speaking. We live a life dependent, heeding God in every situation, saying, God, how do you want me to live this out? It will never violate the logos. It'll always be within that band or that chart of love. But there are times when you need to separate. And if you're a bleeding heart, compassionate one, that is going to be very hard for you, but it's still the truth. And there's times when those of you that really want to give a good, clear word of conviction to this world need to keep your trap shut, bend your knee, and wash feet. The key is, how is God wanting you to play the keys? That's actually the answer in every situation. But the reason I went through this message this way is I want you to recognize that the issue isn't calling Jenny Jake. The issue is in here, inside the believer, of how we care for Jenny and care for the Holy Spirit's work. That we don't just try and can a response and prepackage something saying, here's how I handle the issue, but we say, here's how I handle the issue. I recognize I need God at every moment to lead me so that I can dexterously love and care for those around me. The chariot of the cherubim, harnessed to showcase the love and the glory of heaven. So in Ezekiel, the very beginning of Ezekiel, you see these, it's a very strange picture. There's like a platform and it's, it's some kind of uh, like shiny, like frozen water type of platform. And then there's a seat on it, like a throne. And on that throne is God Almighty. He sits on a throne on this platform. Underneath the platform are four wheels. The wheels have eyes on them, by the way. I don't know if that matters to you. And then they, next to those wheels are these creatures, these living creatures, where further into Ezekiel, you're going to realize these are cherubim. Cherubim have, what is it, four wings. They have four faces, the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, and the face of an eagle. They have feet of a hind. I mean, this sounds like Narnia, I know. It's the Bible. And these cherubim, by the way, Lucifer, Satan, is a cherub. And they're the ones that cover his presence. They are the most powerful and mighty. When they move, they move like lightning. When their wings flap, it sounds like the sound of mighty waters, like Niagara Falls. <laughs> These are the most powerful, most wise of all creatures in all of God's creation. In fact, you almost get the thought, since they were created before we were, that their face is then split up into different strengths. The face of an eagle, which is the king of the skies. The face of a lion, which is the king of beasts. The face of an ox, the king of all working, laborious animals. And the face of a man. God's chief creation. It's like, whoa, that is very interesting. However, these cherubim carry this chariot. And it says they look not to the right or to the left, but they go where the face of God turns. Wherever he turns, that's where they go. If he says down, they go down. If he says up, they go up. Now, these are characters, creatures far more mighty and wise than we are. And how do they use their might and their wisdom? They only do that which God requires of them. Only speak that which he speaks. Only do that which he does. If there's anyone that could make a better decision on their own than us, it would be them. But even they submit. And here's what I'm going to say. The chariot of the cherubim is a picture of the church. The cherubim have been replaced by us. We're the ones carrying the glory of God. We're the ones by the wheels that need to make decisions to carry this glory into this earth. And if the cherubim would submit and only do that which the one on that throne does, how much more so should we be dependent to only follow his lead? How does he want to carry this throne? How does he want to carry his nature into this world? We submit and we say, Lord, show me. The question, should I actually call Jenny Jake? I know, I know. Some of you are really upset that we've gone this far. You've listened to this very long message and you actually still don't know the answer to that. You do, but it might not be the answer you want. You want a canned answer and I'm giving you a very different sort of answer. I'm giving you one that demands dependency. I'm giving you one that demands that you rely on the Spirit of God in every moment of your life, in every situation to determine what you speak when you do speak. 
And when you stand before the crowds and you have an opportunity to testify of the Lord, when you stand before kings, do not worry about what you shall speak for that your God will give you the words. How much more so when Jenny asked you to call her Jake? What do you do in that moment? John 2, 5. Well, here, here's what you do. Whatever he says to you, do it. That means that you have a confidence that he will lead you. The guy talking to you maybe is more familiar with this. That, that could be one of the reasons why I relax more with this as an answer. is because if I don't have this answer, I have nothing to preach every Sunday. My entire life is dependent upon the fact that I know God will give me words to exhort the body. I know it. And I know he'll give me words to exhort an unbeliever. I know that as I walk, if he wants me to speak and I start opening my mouth, he will help me. I know that. But some of you may not. Which means you're wanting the canned answer instead of the dependent answer. It's like, God, Eric, you're saying that I w w don't know what I'm going to say when I come in contact with that person next week. I go, well, yeah, but it's not going to violate the word of truth. <laughs> it's not going to be outside the boundaries of love. It's going to represent his nature, and you can trust that he will equip you to do it. Your job is to allow him to speak through you, to play you as keys on a keyboard. Seven things you can know. His direction will never violate his nature. His direction will never violate the scriptures. His direction will always be truth. His direction will always be loving. His direction will always be the maximum way of winning the soul. His direction will be brilliantly suited to the situation. His direction will be honorable, caring, and considerate. His direction will bring glory to his name. We crave the canned response. This is exactly what you do every time you run into a Jenny named Jake. That's what we want. We want to know exactly what we're supposed to do every time we run into this situation. We must learn the spirit response. The spirit of God lives inside of you. As a believer, that is an essential ingredient to living this out. If you don't have the spirit of God inside of you, you need the spirit of God inside of you. And when he makes this house his home, you know what Jesus would do in that situation. You know what Jesus would say in that situation. You know how Jesus would act in that situation. So when we learn the spirit response, we actually have the answer. Because this is exactly what you do every time you run into a Jenny named Jake. You have a spirit response. You pray, even though it might be very quick. You immediately posture your soul to be dependent. You wait on him. You follow his lead. And you love like Jesus in the precise way Jesus desires to love them. Them. They are unique. The truth is not unique, but the application of that truth to this life, is it with law? Is it with love? Is it with patience? Is it with firmness? What position do you have in their life? Is this someone who is submitted to you that is going astray and you must correct? Is this someone that God is saying, serve them? Trap shut. The only way I can answer that is to say, God has an answer for you. And in each situation, I would not be shocked if some of you would call Jenny Jake. And I would not be shocked if some of you don't call Jenny Jake. I would say all are within the bounds of what could reveal the king of heaven. But the key is, that you need to be sensitive to the Spirit. If you get anything out of this message, it's not gender confusion and how weird it is. It's how good our God is to supply us an answer for every diabolical threat that comes to our culture. This answer that I just gave you is the answer for every conundrum that you get into and how to address the challenges in your life. Whatever he says for you to do, do that. That is actually the great secret of Christianity. Father, I pray that you would take this and that you would use it in our lives. That you would take us by the hand and lead us closer to your word and text, the Logos. And also lead us closer to your Holy Spirit where we would know and know how to be dependent upon you for leadership. Leadership with every word we're speaking. So that, Lord, when we encounter these challenges, 
we would have your grace and your mercy with which to do it. We love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.